Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. Hey, uh, so we are in the second week as we go through the book of Acts. And uh, as Ray said last week, uh, in the history of redemption, there's these huge events. They're like the mountain peaks uh, in the range of God's work. So you have creation, you have the incarnation of Christ, the passion of Christ. Christ just has ascended to his throne. And then last week, we had the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is actually the introduction, the display of God's power, the introduction to the very first sermon given uh, after the, uh, the resurrection. So if you're willing and able, why don't you stand? We're going to read God's word together, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. So this is right after the outpouring of the Spirit. We hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mockingly said, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem... Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose. It is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was fulfilled, is uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And young men shall see vision. And old men shall dream dreams. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death, Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David said concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, and he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also dwells in hope. For you did not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about our patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn an oath to him that he would not set, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw, he spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades. Nor did his flesh see corruption. 
This Jesus, God raised up. And all of that, we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit has been poured out that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now then, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. He baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and your children and those who are far off and everyone who calls on the Lord. In many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. This, then, is the reading of God's word. Every bit of it is true, and he gives it to us because he loves us. You may be seated. Let me ask you a question. What is too much for you? What's too much for you? You know, in the last two years, we've had uh, plenty of too much. We've had too much of a pandemic. We've had too much division over politics. We've had too much that's been put on healthcare workers. We've had too much division over racism. My daughter works in a hospital in Atlanta. She told me this week, she said, Dad, there's been too much of a need to call security at the hospital. There's been too much of a need to call for clergy. You know, we just celebrated remembering um, the 20th anniversary of 9-11. 20 years ago. And for many of us, just remembering it was too much. But what if, what if the thing that was too much was not bad, was not evil, but what if the thing that was too much was too much good? C.S. Lewis wrote some science fiction novels And in one of them, the main character meets this being from Mars. And this being is absolute goodness. And the main character thinks of himself as a pretty good human. But when he encounters this being, he actually discovers he doesn't like goodness as much as he thought. Here's what he says. This is a very terrible experience. As long as what you are afraid of is something evil, you may still hope that the good will come to your rescue. But suppose that you struggle through to the good and you find that it is also dreadful. 
What if the goodness of food turns out to be the very thing you can't eat and home the very place you can't live and your very comforter the person who makes you uncomfortable? Then indeed there is no rescue possible. The last card has been played. I wanted it to go away. I wanted every possible distance, gulf, curtain, blanket, and barrier to be placed between it and me. It was too much. Pentecost, the wind, the fire, and the people proclaim, how is it that we hear each of us in our own native tongue the mighty works of God? The word there is the mega works of God. They are amazed, they are perplexed, they are shocked, their minds are blown, and they ask them, what does this mean? And then later, they say, what are we to do? And they are, they're cut to the heart. And then you have the 3,000 people that are converted, that sends off a shockwave in the world that forms a community called the church that literally blows the doors of history and changes all of history down to this very day, to this very room. So what about Peter's sermon <laughs> was too much for them? Take your sermon outline and let's look at the first sermon together. First, to see the overwhelming glory. The Holy Spirit is poured out and the crowd cries out, what does this mean? And so Peter responds with the first sermon. And he, and he opens up the Old Testament scriptures to them. Now you have to remember, this is primarily a Jewish crowd. They know the Bible. They know about Abraham. They know about Moses. They know about Noah. They know about David and the prophets. And they're actually in Jerusalem for a religious festival. So this is a church crowd. They know the Bible. But just like the disciples who didn't understand Jesus, they didn't either. Now, if you had done like a man on the street kind of thing before this sermon was given and walked through the city streets of Jerusalem and asked people with a microphone, hey, who do you think this guy Jesus was? Oh, yeah, well, I heard of him. Hey, he seemed like a nice guy. You know, he was, maybe he was a little bit misled. Maybe he was a heretic. I don't know. He did a lot of good things for people. You know, he fed people. He did some miracles. But, you know, I, I don't know. I just don't know really who he was. Well, do you think he was the Messiah? Oh, well, some people did. But honestly, it looks like he just talked too much and got himself killed. Sad story, actually. So Peter opens up the Old Testament and shows that the outpouring of the Spirit testifies to this Jesus of Nazareth. He opens up the Psalms and, and talks about how David talked about how Jesus would rise from the dead. Now this is the first sermon in the book of Acts, of which there are about 30 of them. And all of them do pretty much the same thing. Opening up the Scriptures to show that all Scripture points to the glory of Jesus. And to this audience, it would have been utterly shocking. 
even a little bit insulting because they knew the scriptures and they had totally missed it. You see, Jesus is the second Adam. The first Adam blew it in the garden, but Jesus is the true and better Adam in the garden of Gethsemane who passed the test. Jesus is better than King David. David fought Goliath and defeated him and the whole nation of Israel benefited. Jesus is the greater champion who defeats the giant of sin and death. Jesus is the better Jonah. Jonah is tossed into the sea for his deception. Three days in the whale, Jesus three days in the grave, meeting the demands of justice. John the Baptist breaks onto the scene. And when he sees Jesus coming, he says to the crowd, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Passover Lamb. The angel of death comes in the Old Testament. They painted the doorpost with blood. Jesus is the better lamb, the lamb without blemish. His blood is painted on the doorpost of our souls. And then at the end of Luke's gospel, okay? So Luke is, Luke's gospel is like part one, Acts is part two, because Luke wrote Acts. At the end of the gospel, in Luke 24, Jesus has resurrected. He's walking, he's walking with some disciples who do not recognize him. And he is telling them that everything in the Bible is about him. And they said, were not our hearts burning within us? You see, the Bible is not an instruction manual on how to be a good Christian. It is not a religion of behavior modification. No. It is the revelation of the glory of Christ on every page. The first sermon changes the whole understanding of the story that every part, every piece of the Bible whispers, sings, shouts, commands, summons, and celebrates, and shines, and points to Jesus. Really, Adam? Every part of the Bible? <laughs> I mean, isn't that kind of pushing it? Well, let's take a really tough passage in Judges 19. Okay? Very dark story. In Judges 19, there's a man... A nasty man who has more than one wife. He has a concubine, which is a second-class wife. And he's traveling through this rough town. And these bad men try to rob him. And so, and so he offers up his wife. He says, take my wife. And they beat her and they abuse her and they kill her. And it sets off a war. It's very dark. And you read the end of the book of Judges and you're like, oh, just give me the New Testament. <laughs> so how do you see Jesus in this story? How is he reflected even in this dark pool? Well, when you see this nasty, wicked husband in the story, you are to be reminded of the one true husband who lays down his life for his bride, the church, to make her beautiful. Everything points to Jesus. But like these Jewish hearers, we domesticate Jesus. We become too familiar with him. And Peter displays the glory in all of Scripture. And the result is, it's too much for them. 
Diedrich Bonhoeffer says this, the coming of Jesus is not simply glad tidings, but frightening news for anyone who has a conscience. You know, it helps you understand Isaiah chapter six, when the angels are flying around the throne of God and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. And they have six wings. Two wings are covering their feet. Two wings they use to fly. And two wings they're covering their faces. They're flying around the throne of God, declaring and singing of his majesty and his holiness. But they can't look at it. They crave it. They want to be near it. But it's too much for them. Let me show you a picture. This is, uh, of course, uh, Michelangelo's statue of David. I've gotten to go to Italy twice, and both times I went to see this. The second time, I particularly wanted to go see it because of what happened to me the first time I saw it. I mean, look at how, look at, look at that hand. And just think for a moment that a man took a hammer and a chisel, and he created that. And the first time I saw that, I, I, was, I was overpowered by the artwork, by the beauty of it. So much so that as I was standing there, my knees buckled. And I, and I had to sit down on the floor. And that's just a, a piece of motionless stone. You see, the Jews of that day had put Jesus in a box. They had squeezed him into the story of their lives. He was just a teacher with good intentions, but misguided. And now Peter reveals to them that he is the king who is now on the throne. You see, the Bible makes no sense at all unless Jesus is the meaning of it all. Your life will make no sense. His story defines your story, not the other way around. Jesus is the ultimate reality. And if you reject him, you're actually rejecting yourself. You know, we grow uh, too familiar with Jesus. And it causes all kinds of unraveling in our lives. You know, the reason that you can't forgive that person and the relationship is still broken, the reason that you lack joy, the reason that you find yourself just overly critical all the time of other people, the reason you get so angry and so upset in politics and you just demonize the other side is because you have domesticated Jesus. You're no longer blinded by his glory. Your soul no longer bursts forth in any kind of worship of his majesty. He's just become too familiar to you. When Jesus loses the power to humble you, confront you, challenge you, call you forth to worship, then it's only because you've remade him in your own image. You see, Jesus is not someone that follows you. He's not someone you can kind of squeeze into your own story 
and define him based on your own terms. We crave the glory of God. We are made for the glory of God. John Piper says this. He says, we are all starved for the glory of God, not self. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase their self-esteem. Why do we go? Because there is greater healing for the soul in beholding the splendor than there is beholding self. Indeed, what could be more ludicrous in this vast and glorious universe than a human being on the speck called Earth standing in front of a mirror trying to find significance in its own self-image? And so Peter gives us the glory of Christ in the first sermon, and, and his audience, they'd almost missed it. How about you? You know, maybe we ought to pray like Moses and say, Lord, show us your glory. Because his glory will heal us. But first, it has to be too much for you. Second, in this sermon, we see unexpected mercy. Unexpected mercy. Now, verse 36, Peter is wrapping up the sermon. You know, when someone stands and they go, in conclusion, then you lean in, right? That's what Peter's doing here. But they're not leaning in because they're going to beat the Baptist to lunch. No, that's not why they're leaning in. He says, let the house of Israel therefore know for certain... That God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you've crucified. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they cried out, what does this mean? Now, the first thing I want you to know about this is that this shows that you just don't decide to become a Christian. You just don't think, you know, I think Christianity might help me. I think I might add that to the things that I do like a hobby or, or a self-improvement program. No, Christianity takes you up. It sweeps you up. There is a power that comes over you. They are cut to the heart. That word cut to the heart means they, they were pierced. They were stabbed deep within their being. And Peter says to them, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, there's a large crowd in Jerusalem because of the festival. It is now probably seven or eight weeks since Jesus died on the cross. There's been lots of coming and going in the city and travelers and people been here and people been there. It's very unlikely that the crowd that is being addressed here literally are the ones who called for Jesus' death. Yet, they are cut to the heart. They act as if they actually crucified Jesus. Their sin is personal. It's not an abstraction. It's not just a historical event. It's like, I did this. Now, let's look at uh, Peter. Let's look at his life, the one who's actually giving the sermon. In Luke 22, Peter denies Jesus three times after Jesus has been arrested. And three times he is challenged, once even by a little girl. All who asked him, aren't, listen, aren't, wait, I recognize you. Hey, aren't, 
Aren't you one of the followers of Jesus? Yeah, you're one of them. And Peter denies it. He denies it again. Finally, he gets really, really angry about it. He lied. He's trying to save his own skin. He's completely self-absorbed. And, you know, he knew he was wrong. He felt guilty about it. He felt awful about it, in fact. But it was not until Jesus himself was being moved to a different location that he was moved past Peter and Jesus turns and he looks Peter right in the eye. And at that moment, Peter's betrayal, his sin, his failure became personal. And the Bible says that he went out and he wept bitterly. And that he was cut to the heart. And then that moved him to repentance and change. Listen, it's one thing if you say you're not perfect. You know, you broke the rules, you're a sinner, that you're wrong. This is completely different. That gives you a kind of guilt, but this is different. This is different because you've broken the heart of God to whom you owe everything. When you sin, when you fail in some way, guilt will beat on you from the outside. It will push on your will to comply. But this is different. This is not just, oh, I've been a bad boy or I was a bad girl. No, you've broken the very heart of God to whom you owe everything. I have broken the heart of God to whom you owe everything. It's, it's personal. It's when sin becomes personal. This Jesus whom you crucified. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, while I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought my sin a trifle. But when I knew him to be father, I mourned that I could ever have kicked against him. When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could have ever rebelled against the one who loved me so and sought my good, the one who owes me, to whom I owe everything. Jack Miller was a pastor, and in a biography written about his life, the, uh, the, uh, the writer tells a story about when, when Jack and his wife, um, in the 70s and 80s, that they practiced radical hospitality. They would take in any person on the street, really, to live with them and, and offer them home and shelter and love. And one woman they did this with, she was one of the first ones to come live at the Miller's house. Her name was Gwen. And Gwen had been involved in drugs and gangs and all kinds of darkness. And the darkness was growing in Gwen's life, even as she was living in their home, receiving their care, receiving their love, eating with them, talking to their own children, etc., and she was actually planning to murder the host family. But as the gospel began to work on her, the sin that she was about to commit became personal. And she was, she was cut to the heart. And one evening at dinner, she looked at the Millers and she looked at Jack and she said, I have been planning to kill you and Mrs. Miller. And Jack was shocked, but after he regained his shock, he said, listen, before anything else happens, Gwen, you must know 
that we forgive you. We forgive you for planning to murder us and that you are still welcome in our home. And she was cut to the heart. And she began to weep and she said, you are the only people who have ever loved me and I was wanting to kill you. I am so sick. She was shocked by unexpected mercy. Are you? Are you shocked by it? It'll melt you. It'll move you to repentance. And Peter pronounces upon them what they do not expect. A new freedom of forgiveness. He announces on them a new community which they can belong to. And he gives them a gift. The gift of the Holy Spirit. Have you been cut Have you been cut to the heart? Do you need to be cut again? You know, Peter preaches and 3,000 people are converted. Let's just say there's going to be one today. If you need to be cut to the heart, whether you're a Christian or not, go home tonight. Open up the Gospel of John. And say, Lord, I don't even know if you're real. I don't even know if you're power. But show me your glory and read through the gospel. Third, the wonderful cross. Now, you think anything I've said was shocking so far? We're just getting started. This is the most scandalous thing I can say. Verses 23 and 24, the most scandalous event in history that actually was too much was Jesus' death on a cross. Peter says that God planned the death of his son to take place on a cross. Now, to us, the cross is a symbol of beauty. It's the symbol of our faith. I mean, it's, it's, it's a necklace that we wear for, for, for beauty. It's, we, we put it in the window of our sanctuary. It's on top of our buildings. It's, it's on every grave as a symbol of hope and of the future to come. But this is the first time that this is preached. This is the first time in history the cross is ever, crucifixion is ever referred to in a glorious manner. And for the original audience, it would have been unthinkable. Now, up until this point, any kind of power of God displayed, the Holy of Spirit being poured out, the miracles, all the things that God had done, all the powerful things, all that stuff sounds like God. It sounds like what God would do. It would not have been that far out of the normal. Yes, shocking, amazing, powerful, yes. But the cross? This was unthinkable. The crucifixion of the Messiah being planned by God. No. See, the Romans believed the crucifixion was so awful that no Roman citizen would ever be crucified. Only the scum of the earth, only non-humans. The Jews believed that anyone who was hung on a tree was cursed, was the worst possible. This is why 
Some people did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah because he was crucified. He can't be the Messiah. Listen, let's just say this, all right? Let's say this. After church, you're hanging out in here. You're just chatting with your friends. And I come running in after church. I run out of the North and I run down here and I grab you and I say, you gotta come here, come here, come here, come here, come here. You gotta see this, you're not gonna, this is shocking and amazing and wonderful. And you're like, what's up with Jones, man? All right, so I drag you out to the narthex. And out in the narthex, there's this big pile of vomit. And I'm like, look at this, look at this. Isn't this fantastic? This is so great. I mean, this is beautiful. We should make this the symbol of our faith. Ridiculous, right? That's maddening. Now you're getting close. Now you're getting close. There is a real gospel reality in which Jesus on the cross with our sin was the most filthy, grotesque person in the history of the world. That he himself, he was the Lamb of God without blemish, sinless, perfect, and glorious. But with the imputation of all the ugliness of human violence and evil concentrated on one person, concentrated with sin, he became the most obscene, grotesque, cursed human in history. That is the most shocking thing that has ever happened in the history of the world. Years ago, I read this book called The Life of Pi. Some of you remember it because of the movie. In the movie, the, they focus mainly on this whole stuff that goes on with the animals and him in the boat. But in the book, which is obviously always way better than the movie, Pai Patel, this young man, is from India. He's a Hindu. And the story begins as he is searching all religions, looking for answers. And he actually goes out and gets like a mentor from every religion to talk to. And he becomes friends with and is befriended by this Catholic priest named Father Martin. And as they're talking, Pi, he just cannot grasp that Jesus would come down into the filth of all humanity. And he's just wrestling with this. This just, just doesn't seem right. Listen to this dialogue. That God should put up with adversity, I could understand. The gods of Hindus face their fair share of thieves and bullies. Adversity, yes. Reversal of fortune, yes. Treachery, yes. But humiliation and death? <laughs> I couldn't imagine Lord Krishna consenting to be stripped naked, whipped, mocked, dragged through the streets, and to topped off crucified at the hands of mere humans? I've never heard of a Hindu god dying. Devils and monsters did, as did mortals by the thousands. But divinity should not be blighted by death. It's wrong. It was wrong of the Christian God to let his son die. This is tantamount to letting part of himself die. But Father Martin, if the son is to die, well, then it cannot be a fake. The death of the son must be real. Father Martin assured me that it was. But once a dead God, always a dead God, even resurrected, the son must have had the taste of death in his mouth forever. The Trinity must be tainted by it. There must be a certain stench at the right hand of God the Father. The horror must be real. 
Why? Why would God wish that on himself? Why not leave death to mortals? Why make dirty what is beautiful? Spoil what is perfect? Love. That was Father Martin's answer. You know what's shocking? Is that God takes the most barbaric thing at the time, the most shameful thing, the most obscene thing, and makes it the glory of God, the beauty of God, the symbol of hope, future, and worship. It is the pivotal point of all reality for us to grasp the love of God, the glory of God, and the worship of God. And as the cross goes, so do you and I. Wretched, vile, helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Peter says that this promise is for you and your children and for those who are far off. Far, far off. And what it means is, because of the wonder of the cross, there is no person too far from God. There is no heart too hard. There is no sin too big. There is no shame, no failure, no wickedness that is too much for the power of the cross. But you want to know what? Honestly, the biggest shock of all is that people, people like you, people like me, could could actually belong to God could actually be his treasured possession by the wonder of the cross. That's the shock. That's the shock. And if you know it, it'll change you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I might be the most spiritually dull person in this room. Oh, how I yawn and fall into a slumber as to your glory, the majesty of your rescue of me. Father, would your spirit fall on us again? Would you fill us with the wonder of the cross, the power of your love? that we might see ourselves, see you, and see all of life in the shadow of it. Speak, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.